Hello and welcome to our Greyfriars and New Hope uh, Good Friday Reflection. Uh, if you're new to our church uh, and we haven't met yet, uh, then my name is John uh, and I'm part of the staff team here uh, at Greyfriars and I'm going to be leading us through uh, this time together. Uh, and it's our hope and our prayer that this reflection uh, would be an aid for you as you journey through Good Friday this year. Uh, Good Friday is a valuable point uh, in the calendar, a chance for us uh, to perhaps especially stop, uh, to ponder uh, and to marvel afresh at the wonder and the beauty and the significance of Jesus' death for us on the cross. And you know, it, it's so normal for us, isn't it, to rush from one thing to the other. Perhaps for some of us, uh, this season looked a bit quieter, but I know for many it, it's filled with a busyness of its own. And as we go from thing to thing, it's easy to not make time uh, to reflect, to think about all that there is to, to think on, uh, on Good Friday. And we think it's important that we do that, that we make space to pause, because it's as we reflect, as we give ourselves space and stillness so often into that quiet, uh, God has uh, the opportunity to speak to us, to, to tell us new things, to draw us closer to himself. And, and so the aim for this time is really to help you to do that, to pause and reflect uh, on Good Friday, on Jesus' death for us on the cross. And there's a number of different ways you might want to do that uh, using this video. So uh, it's been designed so that you can sit here and watch it all the way through in one uh, sitting. And over the course of our time uh, together, there'll be moments when I encourage you to pause and pray and reflect, uh, and we'll create space in the video so that you can do that. Uh, there'll be songs uh, to listen to, uh, to join in with if you want. There will be videos to watch uh, and help you think. Uh, however you engage uh, with those different things, can I just encourage you, if you, if you want to sit through this in one sitting, that'll work, and just, just go with the video. Uh, we'll lead you through what that will look like. Uh, but another way you might want to engage with this is to do it across the, the course of the day. So depending on what time you're watching this, it might be that you want to watch a section and then go away and think about it and reflect and, and see what it is God wants to say to you before coming back. Uh, the video is going to be broken into three sections, so you, you might want to, to watch it in three portions. It doesn't really matter how you engage with this reflection. Our invitation to you is just however you do it to come again to the cross of Christ today, to meet with our God there and be stirred again to awe and wonder at what Jesus has done for us. And it's our belief, my conviction, that as you do that, God will meet with you wherever you are by his Holy Spirit. And in meeting with you, he'll encourage you, he'll challenge you, and he'll begin to transform you so that you look more and more like our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to begin our time by praying. And I'm going to pray for that, that God would meet with each one of us wherever we are, stir us to worship and make us look more like Jesus Christ. 
So why don't we pray to begin? Father, we want to thank you for this incredible day that each year we can put aside in, in different ways to remember who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters watching this around Reading and further afield, uh, that as they pause to reflect, you would be with them by your Holy Spirit. God, would you fall into our hearts, into our minds, into the places that we are. And Lord, by your Spirit, encourage us, stir our hearts to worship. And God, we ask that by the end of today, we would look more like our Saviour. So be with us, we pray. Amen. Hello, I'm Jill. The reading today is John 18, verse 36 to 40. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, Yes. You are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But, is your, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm reading or watching a story, I often find myself picturing myself uh, in that story. You know, I either imagine myself uh, alongside the characters who are there, uh, or I even imagine what it would be like to be one of the characters. Uh, and if you do that as well, if you're anything like me, then I, I rarely, if ever, think of myself as, uh, as one of the characters who only turn up in the background. I don't picture what it would like to be uh, in the shoes of a character who's never named in a book. Uh, and equally, perhaps even more so, I never think of myself as the villain. I'm never the bad guy when I'm trying to place myself in stories. Now, you better believe that if I'm imagining what it's like to be one of the characters, uh, then the characters that I want to relate to, the ones that I think about, are the heroes of the story. And I think that's probably something... Natural, I think that's something that we all do. But I think that tendency of ours is one of the reasons why coming to the Bible is so often such a strange and jarring experience. Because as we read this book, we're confronted time and time again by the reality that you and I are not the main characters. We're not the heroes of this story. 
because that position belongs to someone else. As we start our journey through this Good Friday story, at the point we join in John's uh, gospel account of what happened, we're confronted by who I think is a strange character. A weird villain crops up into this story and his appearance is almost like an offensive interruption. You know, he's a minor character, a second-rate villain who kind of crops up and squeezes his way in and doesn't deserve as much screen time in the greatest story that's ever told that he seems to get. And it's a villain called Barabbas. And it almost feels to me like Barabbas is a stain in this story. You know, this is the pivotal height of Jesus's ministry on earth. He's confronting, he's coming face to face face, uh, with the earthly rulers and authorities in Pilate. He's confronting religious hypocrisy in the temple leaders. He's doing battle with human evil and with death itself as he comes to the cross. But in walks Barabbas. Barabbas, who is best as we can tell because we don't have loads of information about him, is a common, albeit fairly violent, criminal. He's charged, we read in this account and in the other gospel stories, with murder. And he's an outlaw, an insurrectionist. And he comes into the story on death row because he deserves to be there. He's guilty of the crimes he's accused of. But in a shocking turn of events, in an incredible moment that each gospel writer takes the time to record, Barabbas is allowed to go free. And in his place, the innocent Jesus goes to his death. And I want to suggest that this beautiful exchange, the guilty Barabbas for the innocent Jesus is is the gospel story itself played out in miniature. Because the gospel tells us that our sins, the sins that you and I commit, the things that we do wrong, the, the ways that we step out of line with what God intends for us, the result of those sins is that you and I are each found guilty. And the punishment associated with that guilt is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, a human just like us, yet perfectly innocent, and God himself, chose to come to earth and to swap with us. To take our place, to take our rightly earned punishment upon himself and in return give us his life and his freedom. That's what happened for Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty but was able to go free because Jesus took the spot, took the place, took the punishment that he deserved. The innocent one for the guilty. It's been put like this before. God had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. 
and enter your name here. God had to treat John, uh, Jesus like John deserved so that he could treat John like Jesus. In fact, when I was at, at university, uh, I had a, an incident where someone was trying to encourage me uh, by calling me a Barnabas. You know, they wanted to say that they thought I was an encourager. Uh, but they obviously kind of slipped up as they were sharing this with me. And what they actually said was that they thought I was something of a Barabbas. And do you know what? I think this is the most accurate prophetic word that I've probably ever received. Because as we look at this story, at this gospel account, I am not the hero. You and I, you and I are not the heroes of this story. Can I suggest to you that we're not even the background characters in the crowd primarily. No, you and I are Barabbas, the guilty ones who get to go free because of Jesus. Confronted this Easter by the story of the cross, the gospel reminds us that you and I are guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God says the Bible and it's true. You know, if we each honestly, in the quiet of our own hearts, take the time to examine where we're at, take the time to examine our souls. If we're honest, I think most of us, I wanna suggest all of us, will come to the realization that all is not as it should be. You know, we fall short of our own standards, let alone the standards of a holy God. But the story of Barabbas, right here at the heart of Good Friday, reminds us that Jesus came precisely to take our place. And in taking our guilt upon himself and giving us his innocence, you and I, like Barabbas, get to walk free. Jesus has taken our place. Jesus has died so that ultimately we don't have to. And so as we take these first steps in our, our journey through Good Friday, perhaps the first step is recognising our place in the story. You and I are not the heroes, but we have been rescued by the hero. And because he went to the cross, we get to go free. Let's pray. Father, we come to this story and remember that we are the rescued. That we have been saved, that by ourselves we didn't have much hope. But at the cross, our Saviour came to set us free. To set us free from the punishment our sins deserve, to, to set us free from the chains and the fear of death. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the hero. And that it is in this story, the hero has indeed rescued us. Father, we come in sorrow for the times we've got things wrong. We want to say sorry and to turn away from our mistakes, from the things that make us guilty and turn instead to Jesus Christ. So on this Good Friday, would we know the forgiveness won
one on the cross as we come to you, confessing our sins. And we recognize the saving work you did for us. And would you well up thanks within our hearts. Timothy. Our next reading is from John chapter 19 verses 1 to 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. You know, I find the trial of Jesus, some of which we just heard in that last reading, some of the most disturbing reading 
of the Easter story. Because here is Jesus, who Pilate has, has freely admitted that he knows is innocent, and who the religious leaders by all rights should be worshipping, instead being mocked and treated as a criminal. It makes for disturbing reading, but John includes it in his gospel for a very important reason. Because within the mockery, what is revealed about Jesus is a profound truth about who he really is. Because what we read in these verses is intended to be mockery. It's intended to be humiliating, a humiliation of a criminal who had the audacity to claim that his life and his actions were bringing about a new kind of kingdom and a kingdom in which he himself would be the king. And so the soldiers mock him. How could that be true? How could this man be a king when he finds himself where he finds himself in this story? But in their mockery, they stumble across something that was truer than they knew. And John, the gospel writer, presents it to us in a way that's supposed to flip our expectations on their heads. Because John and, and each of the other gospel writers present Jesus's crucifixion and trial, not as a defeat, not even perhaps primarily as an execution, but instead as Jesus's coronation. This is the moment when the king of the coming kingdom goes public and takes his rightful place. And we see it in the mockery and the treatment that takes place in his trial. The king is given a crown, but it's not one of gold, but of cruel thorns that cut his head. He's dressed in a, a royal purple robe, but rather than being made of the finest material, it was quite possibly, quite probably, the faded cast-offs of the Roman soldiers. He's hailed as king. His, his royalty is proclaimed for the crowds. But it's done in spite. It's done as an insult. It's biting. And it's said by abusers who think the very suggestion is foolishness. And soon this king will be lifted high, exalted above the people who can look upon him. But those people will look in horror and with hatred as the king is not lifted up and placed on his throne, but is lifted up on the cross. Jesus turns upside down everything we expect a king to be, everything we expect the story of a king to follow. He's humble. He sacrifices himself for love of his people. His victory looks an awful lot like death. This is a king like no other. But the challenge for you and I today is that Jesus's claim to be king, strange though it looks, is meant to displace every other claim 
of rulership and authority over our lives. Because if Jesus is king, that means nothing and no one else can be. And that's the reason why the response we see from the Jewish leaders in this story is so tragic. Because in their single-minded pursuit of seeing Jesus killed, they declare that they have no other king but Caesar. And in doing so, they betray their people. They betray their own scriptures that declare that Israel has no king other than God himself. And perhaps that's not the risk you and I run. We're not about to declare our allegiance to Caesar rather than Jesus this Easter. But confronted by the shock of the crucified king, we may find ourselves trying instead to put something else on the throne of our hearts. Something that will seem to fit more comfortably, to, to look like what we expect a king to look like, to fit our expectations more closely. Maybe we give our, our allegiance to self-serving consumerism, whatever the cost is to ourselves or others. Maybe we give our allegiance to unforgiveness and hatred and let them sit on the throne and call the shots. Maybe it's self-serving, self-determining, self-obsessed individualism that we let shape the kingdom of our hearts. The Gospel of John wants to remind us that there is only one king. And that king, strange though he may look, is Jesus. He's a king who would die for us, who would humble himself to death, even death on a cross. But the question to us remains, who will you turn to as your king? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we look to the cross and we see you as a strange king lifted on high, would that image challenge us in our hearts? Disturb us in the places when we let anything or anyone else on the throne. And help us now to bow the knee to the crucified king. Hi, my name is Alyssa. Our final reading is taken from John 19, starting at the second half of verse 16 through to verse 30. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claims to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, 
I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received this drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Perhaps one of the most fundamental questions of the Christian faith is this. Why did Jesus die? And there are a number of different ways, legitimate ways, that we could choose to answer that question. You know, we might want to say that Jesus died because of the religious leaders in Jerusalem who were offended by and jealous of the response that Jesus got from the people around him. And as a result, they orchestrated his death to get rid of this problem. Or we could say that Jesus died because of Pilate, the Roman governor who was a weak and ineffective leader who was afraid of what would happen to him if news got back to Rome of him dealing with this situation in the wrong way. And both of those reasons are true and they're important to the story. Jesus died because of the action of these and other people. But I want to suggest that there's a more fundamental reason why Jesus died, and it's this. Jesus died because he chose to. There are a few times in the verses that we've read and just heard read just then, where John takes the time to point something strange out to us. Because he says, doesn't he, that, that what happened happened so that scripture might be fulfilled. In fact, uh, in each of the gospel accounts of Jesus's death, we see time and time again signposts in the text that point us back to prophetic promises from the Old Testament about the death of a saviour. It seems like God saw this coming. But it's not just in the Old Testament. Throughout John's gospel, John has been pointing us to uh, throughout the entire narrative, he's been pointing us to signs that Jesus performed in order to reveal his glory, to reveal his true nature and the real importance of who he was and what he did. And so the first time John points us to one of these signs is in chapter two, after Jesus has turned water into wine. And then again in chapter four, we're told that Jesus healing the official son was his second sign. But then John stops counting and he expects us to keep counting by ourselves. And if you're paying attention 
you'll keep seeing those signs through this gospel, but you'll only get up to number six. So we see Jesus healing the paralysed man at the pool of Bethesda, multiplying the loaves and fishes, healing the man born blind. And then finally, the fourth that's not named, Jesus raises Lazarus. These six signs point to Jesus, but John is deeply rooted in his Hebrew heritage. And so he would never stop at just six signs. Because seven, you may know, is the number uh, of perfection. It's the number of wholeness and completedness. And so just as this book, if you're reading it and you've got an eagle eye, you'll see it has seven I am descriptions that Jesus uses about himself. And it has seven I am statements as Jesus names himself as God. We can expect to find a seventh sign in this book. And it's here. The seventh revelation of Jesus's glory, his nature, his character and his beauty is his death on the cross. This is where we most clearly see Jesus's glory. As the innocent king chooses to die for you and for me, to set us free, to live a new life in the kingdom. The cross is the seventh sign, it's the fulfilment of scripture. And all of this is to say that the cross was not an accident. Jesus was not forced here. He didn't stumble into this situation. It wasn't a mistake, it wasn't an accident. No, Jesus chose the cross. But that still begs the question, doesn't it? Why? Why would Jesus choose to die like this? Well, Jesus pointed to the reason himself earlier in this gospel, uh, in chapter 15, when he says, This greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus chose the cross because he loves you. He chose it for you. He chose it to take your place and to set you free. He did it not out of duty or inevitability or by mistake, but he did it because of love, because he loves you. I wonder, do you realise that God loves you? More than that, do you realise how much God loves you? Have you ever asked yourself the question of how far God would go to show you his love? Well, if you're ever unsure, look to Good Friday and to the cross. Look to his choosing to die for you, to see the full extent of his love. It's been said that if you want to know how much Jesus loves you, you just need to look to the cross where Jesus with outstretched arms says he loves you this much. And so again, faced with the wonder of the cross, let's pause, let's reflect and let's pray. Father God, would you not let us lose the wonder of the cross. 
would we never grow numb or insensitive to the fact that you chose it to show us your love. And so Lord, for each one of us, I pray, would you amaze us with your love again, even now, wherever we are. Help us to see the wonder of the cross. So as we finish our time of reflection and now, I just want to pray for us one last time. And I'd like to pray for us in a couple of specific ways. Firstly, if you're watching this and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, but as, as we've gone through this process of reflecting and meeting with God through his word in the story of Good Friday, if as we've been doing that, God has been meeting with you in whatever way that looks for you, has been meeting with you by his Holy Spirit, then I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond. And if you'd like to do that in a moment, I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray a prayer that you can repeat after me wherever you are. I'm going to pray a prayer that says sorry to God for our sins, that thanks him for his death on the cross and then asks him to come and live in our hearts as our Lord, our Saviour and our friend. And if you'd like that, if you'd like to know the Saviour who loves you, who died for you, who wants to take your place, then I'm going to pray that. You can pray that wherever you are. And I believe and trust that God will meet with you and will set you free for a new life with him as your king. That's the first one I'm going to pray. Secondly, I want to pray for those of us who would already call ourselves followers of Jesus. And for us, I'm going to pray that Jesus would now fall afresh on us by his spirit and that he'd stir our hearts to go on worshipping him through the rest of this day, through into Easter and on into the weeks and months ahead, that he'd renew us as a people who love him for the cross, love him as king, love him for all he has done for us. So that's what I'm going to pray. Uh, you might want to pray with me. Wherever you are, you might find it helpful just to, to place your hands in front of you as a sign that you want to receive from God. Let's not let this just be like watching another Netflix show or something on YouTube, but let's make this a time of encounter with our Lord. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this opportunity to stop and to meet with you in the midst of strange and scary and challenging times to be able to reflect on what you have done for us for the price you've paid the victory you've won the freedom you've bought for us and so lord i want to pray for anyone who's listening to this now who doesn't know you but who would like to who would like to turn to you, receive the forgiveness for sins that you've bought for us to be set free into a new life in a new kingdom under a better king. 
And so if that's you, I'm going to pray and I'll leave some space and you can just repeat it after me. So you might want to pray this, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for the way I have sinned. I'm sorry for the wrong steps that I've taken. I'm sorry for turning away from you. And Lord, I want to ask that you would forgive me. I want to make Jesus' death on the cross my own. I want to be set free. And so, Lord Jesus, please would you come into my heart. And would you be my saviour? God, I want to thank you that even as I pray it, even as I pray it, you come to be with me. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving me. I want to receive your love. Amen. Amen. And for those of us who want to know the love of Jesus more deeply, to be people who love him for the cross, let me pray. Father God, would you not allow any one of us to go away from this time unaffected, but would you melt and stir up our hearts to love you? Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We're amazed at who you are. And we want to be a people of worship. So by your spirit, would you come and make that so? in each one of us, wherever we are. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we finish with these words of blessing. Christ crucified, draw you to himself to find in him a sure ground for faith a firm support for hope and the assurance of sins forgiven. And may the blessing of God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be with us and remain with us always. Amen.